some books ready, but you can be ready by turning to Revelation chapter 3 as we move on to the fifth of these churches that the Lord makes addresses to. John is recording these. They will eventually be sent out to these churches. Remember, John was allowed to have visitors on this island that he was exiled to um, for his witness for Christ. And so most likely the leaders, the angels, the pastors of these churches or a representative would come to visit John, uh, take the letter, bring it back to their church, and it would be circulated then among all the churches eventually. If you remember that map, I believe it's still on the back, I hope it is, of the seven churches. It's kind of like a horseshoe, and um, they could easily, because of the connections of some major roads, uh, circulate these letters, make copies of circulate them. Because remember, at the end of each of these, there is a message for all the churches. So it's expected that all the churches will hear these eventually as they're passed along. Well... In this, this is a shorter passage tonight, Revelation 1, uh, 3, 1 through 6. And each one of these addresses, Jesus describes a different aspect of himself. Most of these have already been um, emphasized in the vision that John saw of Jesus approaching him. <clears throat> and these will be repeated tonight. These won't be anything strange to us and have been through this study already. But he's now described Jesus as the one who sends out the Spirit to work among the churches and who also has authority over the leaders. Again, that emphasis that Jesus has the right to tell us what to do. Because he died for the church, right? And so he has that authority. And he's going to be describing this church that thought they were something. In reality, they were nothing. They thought they looked great on the outside, but unfortunately they were dead on the inside. They must awaken quickly or face grave consequences. I remember uh, the summer that I was privileged to counsel at the wilds, all the way back in 2001. It was a few years ago. Um, but I uh, got to meet a lot of wonderful people and a lot of folks that are on staff now currently, including uh, Matt and Christy Taylor and many others, were counseling the summer that I was there. There was something that happened there as, as, as much as the Lord was moving and, you know, in an in environment like that, uh, where you're constantly ministering to kids and to people 24-7 and giving the gospel and all these things, you just uh, form a camaraderie that's really special, a special bond. And uh, there was one event, though, that was tragic, and it was a first for the Wilds, and it was an unfortunate first. That was uh, a young man who was on op staff there um, that worked there, and he, he, um, his job was he was very gifted at this and very skilled. He had been registered, licensed, all these things, to uh, climb trees and um, prune them and also to get rid of trees that that might be dead, and he had ways to do that 
um, skillful in his equipment, always making sure that safety first. He was very good at what he did. His name was Justin. And uh, I believe it was on a Thursday. We had just finished with a major game out on the field. This is the Wilds of North Carolina, before the Wilds of New England. And um, I believe it was Rand had to get on the loudspeaker. And he said, folks, I just want you to, to come around and gather around me for a minute. And he gave us some very tragic news. And that was that Justin, this man, this young man, who was so skilled in, in doing this particular activity that the Lord had taken him home. And the reason that, that that had occurred was that he had um, a particular tree that needed to be checked to see if it needed to come down or not and pruned to different things. This happens regularly. It was a tree that on all aspects from the outside looked healthy, looked fine. And this is this this man was very skilled. He was very careful. There was no indication at all there was a problem with this tree. But hidden away on the inside, it was rotten in a way that you could not tell from the outside. And you got to a certain point way up, and the tree snapped and fell over, and, and the Lord took him home just like that. God had his reasons for that. And um, there's still a memorial today for that young man um, that gave his life in service to the Lord. But remember that because that tree, from all aspects, looked healthy. Looked good, and yet it was rotten on the inside. And Jesus is addressing that kind of church. And so, as he addresses this church in Sardis, again, the question is for our ministry are we rotten in any way, even though we may look good on the outside? And the problem that we face, that all of us face here, that Jesus is addressing, is that we may, if we're not careful, we can get to a point in ministry where we have little passion or commitment in our service. And really, our works are dead, even if they look like they're energetic and alive. Really being done for the wrong reasons, with no love for Christ at all. This is a very, this is a short message, but again, like the one to fire tire this morning, it's one of the most sobering messages out of all of the seven here, and one that we need to take heed of. We're going to see the need to waken a dead church. Verse 1 of chapter 3. And the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at the hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, again, we understand as we read these words, it's another sobering message from Christ to a church that needed to wake up, that was not perceiving the reality of their true spiritual condition. 
But they were deceived into thinking they were passionate for you, full of energy for you. And in actuality, they were comatose. They needed energizing. They needed to wake up and pursue with passion and committedness their service to you. For we understand this could be any church, even today, that may look good on the outside, that may have a reputation as being a um, healthy, exciting ministry to be a part of, and yet truly is dead spiritually on the inside, or close to death. Or help us to heed the warnings that this would not be our church, and more individually, that this would not be said of any of us, that we look good on the outside, Rather like the Pharisees, whitewashed tombs, but deadness on the inside. Help us to take this warning, short but sober warning, seriously tonight. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We have a dead church that needs to wake up. And the first three verses remind us, Jesus knows the reality of our ministry efforts. He knows what's going on. I think... We, if nothing else, we've gotten that theme, hopefully, out of these messages to the churches. And he perceives the reality behind all ministry works. There may be ministries that look exciting and doing all kinds of things, and they may be legitimate, but they may be putting on a show. And, only, and, and Jesus alone knows the reality of the heart and knows what's going on. And his fifth address, then, is to this church in this town of Sardis, written to the leadership, be passed to the church as a whole. And this city of Sardis really has a fascinating and distinguished history, even though at this point, while John is writing to it, it's in its twilight of significance. Its significance has somewhat passed, really uh, had um, some interesting history uh, throughout its existence. And it was located in a very strategic formation of hills that led from a plain, an elevation in the plain, uh, to a mountainous elevation. It's kind of a middle line between those two. And there was a small neck of land near this city. It, was, it had a steep and winding road, but it provided really the only access to the city from the south. Now, the other sides of the city were smooth, were set on smooth rock walls that literally dropped down to the plain 1,500 feet below. It was like a fortress of rock that the city was built on. Only one entryway, and that entryway, that road, was somewhat formidable. So because of that, this city was an ideal stronghold, unlike Thyatira that we saw this morning that really had no capability of defending itself. This city became well-known for being almost invincible in, uh, in being able to access it. So it was an ideal stronghold, although it did limit the growth of the city. We'll see more of that in a minute. And it served as a capital of an ancient kingdom, literally 1,200 years before Christ. And it continued to grow in significance and size up until New Testament times, so much so that it had to expand to form a second city nearby, and thus it was called Sardis, a plural, a pluralized word, because it had become a double city. And so the name itself was in the plural. 
And soon, throughout in, in the history of its existence, it became really an impregnable, wealthy city that was known for its gold and its individualism of rule and society. As even as we Americans today still, to a certain extent, we feel like, feel like we're losing our freedoms and our individuality, but we still, um, we still tout ourselves on having that freedom in some way or another, Sardis exemplified that as well. They were they were their own they were their own people. They were thinkers and they prided themselves in being independent from the culture around them in a lot of ways. Um, however, they became so invincible by 6th century BC, they obtained a reputation of being invincible and their trust in that had devastating consequences that we'll talk about in a minute. And it's an interesting comparison to the message that Jesus is giving them. Well, in AD 17, a severe earthquake damaged the city, and Tiberius, the emperor, donated much funds of his own account in order to reconstruct the city. And in appreciation, Sardis minted a special coin with his image and inscription and also the image of his mother, or the temple, they erected a temple in honor of him and his mother. There was evidence as well of a Jew, Jewish synagogue and some evidence of emperor worship. But in this city, its main form of worship was a worship nature or the forces of nature. And also, interestingly enough, there's a lot of interesting correlations with the city and what the message that Jesus has for them. They had what was a well-known hot springs nearby located near the city, and so they believed their local god of the underworld through this hot springs had the power to restore life from death. There are many strange beliefs. Another really unique situation was these folks had a famous cemetery just a few miles down the road that they were very proud of. Imagine being proud of a cemetery, being proud of a place bury your dead. Rather fitting for a dead church, really, in a lot of ways. Speaking of that church, we really don't have a record of how or when the church was established. Could very well have been through Paul as his ministry in Ephesus or John's ministry in Ephesus. Somehow, the gospel came to Sardis. But at this point, as, John's, uh, as Jesus is addressing them and John is sending the letter, both this city and the church had passed its prime. It did not have the significance that it used to be. This church still had a reputation, however, of being a vibrant church. And yet Jesus makes it clear, even though they probably thought of themselves as still a vibrant church, that they were deceiving themselves. The whole thing was a sham. Because in reality, you could say they were literally on spiritual life support. They were ready for spiritual burial that their famous cemetery reflected. And Jesus calls them to wake up, to realize the reality that they are close to death. And that's what he says in verse 2. Wake up. We can imagine the power of Jesus' words here would be enough to shake, hopefully, those in their complacency. And... Uh, spiritual apathy. So wake up 
Jesus is fully capable of dealing with those that are complacent in their service, those that are comatose in their spiritual walk, even as a ministry. He says, and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. You will not know at what hour I come against you. Jesus is making this very clear that their works are not works that are fruitful and sincere. Whatever this means, whether they lost, probably includes losing their love for Christ, like Ephesus, probably half-hearted works, just putting in the time. They're, they're, they're um, proud of the ministry that they do, but it's half-hearted. It's not really um, dedicated to the Lord. It's not motivated by love for Christ. It's withered. They're just going through the motions. Folks, Jesus knows whether our service is motivated love for him and thankfulness for him or if we're going through the motions. If we're just kind of, as we used to say, phoning it in. We're doing it. There's no passion. No energy behind it. And therefore, he says, you are about to die and you need to strengthen that passion in your service for me. Their works were not complete in the sight of God, of his Father, because they have lost their love and their passion and their devotion for Christ. This was very serious. Folks, let's pause a minute there. If we are doing that kind of service here in this church, it is a serious thing to Jesus Christ. He notices it. He will mark it. We hear, we, we've read in the Old Testament and Malachi and other places that God does not want our sacrifices. He's not impressed with our sacrifices and our service and our worship to him. They're not motivated by obedience and love for him. Perhaps these folks were obeying and, and doing what they had to a church and then just living their lives in disobedience and doing whatever they, want, they wanted to do. We don't know. So there's a lot of room for application here. And we need to be careful. But thankfully, verse 3, Jesus gives them opportunity. Like he did with the Jezebel and those that followed after them we saw this morning. He says, remember then what you have received. Listen to me. Don't just forget this. You know, small children, sometimes you have to get their attention by kind of almost grabbing their face and saying, look at me. Um, and... Really, Jesus is kind of saying that here. Remember, look at me, what I just told you and what you just heard. Don't just let it go in one ear and out the other. But keep what I have said, and you repent, you turn from this apathy. Don't continue to serve and minister in this way without love and without devotion for me. If you repent of that, it's wrong. And if you will not repent, here is his dealing with this complacent, apathetic service. I will come like a thief. You will not know at what hour I will come against you. This is interesting. What is Jesus saying here? 
Well, we know that his return is described, seen throughout Scripture, as that he will come as a thief. In other words, it will be unexpected for those that are not, are not ready for it. None of us knows, as, as God's children, none of us knows the hour or the time or the day or anything. But it's not as if when Jesus returns, it will catch us unawares. For those that faithfully are serving Jesus Christ, he won't come. It won't be as a thief. It'll be something that we expect because we're looking forward to it and we're ready for it. But for those that are not ready for it, certainly those that have rejected him and perhaps believers who have become apathetic and have lost their passion, it will come as a surprise. Now, is that what Jesus is referring to here? That he will come as a thief in the night, and you will not know this really is a, a, a righteous threat here. Not gonna know the hour. You're you're not gonna want you're not gonna welcome my return when I come because it will be a complete surprise. Well, he is referring to believers here. Let's remember the context. So although there may be an eschatological future reference, I think really again Jesus is is talking about something that could happen in the near future for them. And coming like a thief will mean coming like uh, as a surprise. And what does a thief do when they surprise? They take things that are valuable. They take things that are precious to us. Jesus is basically saying, if I am not precious to you in your service, I have an option in dealing with your sin. I can come at any time and take something that is precious to you, that has become more important in service to me. Herb talked to a young man recently. He's very much involved in soccer. Loves soccer. Nothing wrong with soccer, by the way. Love to watch. And, and uh, some of my boys have an interest in, in soccer, and some of you, Jim Wood, is. Uh, Proficient, and has taught others, mentored others. Nothing wrong with that, Jim. <laughs> yeah. But this young man admitted to me, he was very candid, he's very open, um, that he had had an accident and he had injured himself while playing soccer, and he really felt, in hindsight, a reflection upon that, that soccer had become his idol, that it had become the most important thing to him in his life. And he said, I think the Lord had to take that away from me so that I can focus more on my service to him. And that really describes just one application of what Jesus is saying here. If you worship and put other things as more important than me, then I may have to come and deal with that and take that away from you. So think through that, folks. Probably very easy to make a list of things in our lives that tend to be, if we're not careful, more important than our service to Jesus Christ. And that has to be changed. It'd be good to make a list of those things and then pray, Lord, help me. I'm tempted to make these things more important and spend more time on these things than I spend time with you. And my service is affected and my passion is affected by that. And before you have to discipline me, Lord, I choose to repent. I choose to put you first back in the place where you need to be. And Jesus will receive that, and he will offer forgiveness for us and help us to change. Well, he's fully capable of dealing with apathetic service, certainly. 
But in the midst of complacency and apathy, Jesus also is able to recognize the worthy servants, the ones that still have a love and a passion for him. That's verse 4. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white. They are worthy. One who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus knows those who have remained pure and passionate for him. That is his description of them here. Seems to be a small group, this distinguished city of Sardis. There were people that have not soiled their garments, that remain pure. And that also gives us an indication that part of this apathy and complacency in service had come because people were giving more time to sin and the things of the world than they were service to God. And folks as well, when we allow on 